Welcome to Ebenezer's Podcast, a podcast about hearing, understanding, and applying the Word of God to our lives. My name is Leighton Erickson, and I'm Ebenezer's Lead Pastor. Thanks for joining us today. Please check out our website at ebenezerbaptist.ca to connect with us and learn more about our ministries. I hope you enjoy the message. Good morning, Ebenezer family and friends. Welcome to our service today. We are glad that you joined us. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Wes, and uh, I have the privilege of serving on the staff team here uh, at Ebenezer. I also just want to take a moment to uh, acknowledge the prophetic gifting upon Pastor Layton's life for calling the Edmonton Oilers win and the Toronto Leafs uh, loss. Although uh, predicting a Toronto Maple Leafs loss is kind of like predicting snow in the winter, but uh, <laughs> sorry to any of you. Uh, I, I'm not a hockey fan, but I just I got to get a jab in there sometimes when I can. Okay, so anyway, um, <laughs> last week Pastor Layton started a new series for us called Covenant Community, and this is something that as a staff team we have been prayerfully seeking after God's heart for for a number of months just trying to seek his will and his direction for the life of our community as we move forward. And in this Covenant Community series, we feel that God has highlighted to us three areas that we desire to focus in on and move towards as a body in the coming year. And these three areas are a renewed heart towards God, towards obedience to him, a renewed commitment to being a spiritual family together, and a renewed engagement in God's mission. These are the three areas that we feel God, by His Spirit, has specifically highlighted and is asking and calling us to move towards and emphasize in the coming year. And so I encourage you as well, as as Pastor Layton shared, um, we're going to be talking about these things and trying to paint a bit of a clearer picture for you on these vision nights, Tuesdays, uh, this Tuesday and Wednesday. So we would really love and appreciate you being a part of that. And so I just wanted to let you know that as well. I'm going to pray, if that is all right, and uh, just pray for God's leading over this time. So if you would pray with me, I would very much appreciate that. God, we thank you for your presence here among us. We thank you, Lord, that it is your desire to be with your people. God, we thank you that you are Emmanuel. You are God with us. And so, Lord, we acknowledge you and we thank you And Lord, I just ask and pray now that as I share, I acknowledge, God, that you are the vine and that I am the branch, and that apart from you, I can do nothing. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak in me and speak through me for the honor of your name and the building up of your church. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And all God's people said, amen. Today we're going to be looking at the first of these three areas that we feel the Lord has highlighted to us, which is the renewal of the heart. If you go back through any point in biblical history or church history, any time of significant renewal, where there was a movement of God's Spirit moving powerfully upon a community or a city or a nation, it always starts with God working in the hearts of His people. There is always a call for his people to return to him, to come back to him. Because the reality is, is that we are prone to drift. 
We are prone to wander in our faith. It doesn't matter how long you have been following God, how faithfully you have been serving Him, how how devoted to Him you might be. There is a propensity inside of us to drift and to walk away from God. The prophet Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 56 verse 3. He says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. This is the condition that we are in. We are prone to wander. And that is why the consistent call of God in the Scriptures is to return, to come back to Him. And the word most frequently used in the Scriptures to describe this returning, this coming back to God, is the word repentance. Now, the Greek word for repentance is the word metaneo. It's the word we get metamorphosis from. If you think about a a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly, it undergoes a metamorphosis. This is the root word of our word repentance. It's a complete transformation. One Bible dictionary defined it this way. It means to change any or all of the elements composing one's life their attitudes, thoughts, behaviors, concerning the demands of God for right living. So repentance is a change in direction of a whole person's life, away from sin and death and towards God and his ways. The apostle Peter, after healing a man on the steps in the temple, he begins to preach to the crowd and he says this in Acts chapter 3 verses 19 and 20. He says this, now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. And we see here in this passage two crucial elements of what biblical repentance means. The first thing is that repentance is not just turning away from your sin. It's actually turning away from your sin and towards God and His ways. Now, sometimes people in society or in the world around us, they can do almost like a half a repentance. They can recognize, man, I've been doing these things. These are really self-destructive. I've got some bad patterns and behaviors going on in my life. I need to quit that. I need to get rid of that. And so they turn from what we would refer to as sin, but they don't turn all the way to God. They just stop a habit or they stop a behavior. Biblical repentance is a full 180. It is away from sin and death and a full turning back to God and his ways. That's the first thing of what repentance means. Paul, or Peter says this, now repent of your sins and turn to God. Repentance is both of those realities. The secondly is that we need to realize is that repentance is not a burden to bear. It is actually a joy, it is a privilege to be able to come to God in repentance. This is something that we should rejoice over. It is not something that we should bear grudgingly. You and I sin. We stray, we struggle, we we walk away from God. And yet, when we recognize we're in that place and we come to that point of realization, I have sinned, I have wandered away from God, I am not following the path of God on this, I need to return to Him. His arms are wide open, waiting for you to come back, to welcome you with forgiveness and grace and mercy. This is who He is. 
And the, the Peter, he says it this way. He says, repent of your sins, turn to God, that your sins might be wiped away, and that times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. This is how he describes repentance, that it is a turning away from your sins and coming back into the presence of God, that you might enjoy the refreshment and the blessing of the presence of God. This is not a burden to bear. This is a privilege that we have as followers of Jesus. We get to repent. We are not forced or coerced to. We are invited to repent. And so the question before us this day is simply this. How do we do this with all of our hearts? How do we do this in such a way so that our return, so that we truly can enjoy the refreshment of God? And as we are outlining this series, I began to pray and ask the Lord, what would be the scriptures that he would want me to share this morning? And as I was doing that, my mind was immediately drawn to the story of Josiah in the Old Testament. In the book of 2 Kings 23, if you're you're unfamiliar with the story of Josiah, we're going to read about it today. But in 2 Kings 23, verse 25, it says this of King Josiah, neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and all of his strength in accordance with the law of Moses. King Josiah's story, his repentance, his return to the Lord, the return of the king, so to speak, is what we are going to look at today. Now, King Josiah's story and his reign in Judah takes place roughly in the years of 640 to 609 BC, give or take. Nearly 300 years prior to this, the nation of Israel was united under King David and then his son, King Solomon. But after the death of Solomon, the kingdom was divided into the northern tribes, which they referred to as Israel, and into the southern tribes, which referred to later on as Judah. And over the next roughly three centuries, both Israel and Judah had a mix of good and bad kings. However, when you read the accounts of them all, you will find that there were far more bad kings than good kings, unfortunately. And Josiah comes on to the scene after two Judean kings, one named Manasseh and the other Ammon. Manasseh was a horrible king, unfortunately. 2 Kings 21 says this of him. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephizbah. If I'm saying that wrong, forgive me. Uh, Jewish names are hard. (laughs) He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of God, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritualists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. 
And this was the legacy of Manasseh 55 years before his son Amon took over and reigned for two years, only to have his inner court of influencers and people close to him conspire and ended up killing him. So this is what preceded Josiah for nearly 60 years before he was installed king of Judah. And the the story picks up in 2 Kings 22, where it says this, 2 Kings 22, verses 1 and 2, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jediah, daughter of Adonai. She was from Boscath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. So after 60 years of idolatry and sin and wandering away from God, Josiah comes onto the scene as an eight-year-old kid and is installed as the new king. I have an eight-year-old son. Lord, have mercy. We, like, but, but you know what? The story does, the story's really good. So, so the Lord works in mysterious ways. Chapter 22, the story continues, verses 3 and 5. In the 18th year of his reign, so he's roughly 26 at this time, in the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah the high priest and have him ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrust it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. And have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord. So Josiah has decided to undergo a a temple refurbishing, reconstructing the temple. It's fallen into disrepair. And so he appoints workers and he sets his mind and his heart, we're going to repair this temple. And the story goes on from there. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. And then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. So the construction begins on the temple, and as they are working out the kinks and, and trying to put the temple back into, uh, into good report, they find the Bible. <laughs> they find the Old Testament. They find the Old Covenant scriptures, which they have lost. Imagine that for a moment. They've lost the Bible. They've just completely lost it. And, he, and the priest comes to the king, and he says, King, we have found the Old Testament. We have found the covenant. We have found the law of Moses. And he reads it in the presence of the king. And this is how King Josiah responds. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. And he gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Aachim son of Shaphan, Akbar son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. 
King Josiah hears the word of God. He hears the word of the Lord, and he is broken. He is absolutely broken. He tears his clothes, and he calls for the priests. He calls for his officials, and he says, go. Go and inquire of the Lord for me. Go and seek after God, because our fathers have not done what this book says. Go and seek the Lord for me. No one else, no other king that we have recorded in the scriptures ever turned to God like Josiah did. We have no record of a king ever turning with all of his heart back to God in the way that Josiah did. And so what I want us to do with the remainder of our time is I want to examine what what made up his repentance, what made it so profound, and what can we learn about that today of what does it mean to return to the Lord with all of our hearts. There are four things that Josiah models for us in his repentance. The first thing that Josiah models for us in his repentance is this, he recommits to obedience to God. He recommits to obedience to God. 2 Kings 23, verses 1 to 3. The story continues. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all of his heart and all of his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Last week, Pastor Layton shared about the different covenants that the scriptures outline, and the, the story of God is actually, it's, it's bookmarked almost by these different covenants that God made with his people. But in all of those different covenants that Pastor Layden outlined, God was the initiator of that covenant with his people. This is a different one. Josiah reads the word of the law, and he recognizes he has fallen. He recognizes his people have wandered away, and he decides we are going to make a covenant with God. God has initiated, but we are going to respond in obedience to him. And this is true of all genuine repentance. All genuine repentance has a line in the sand moment. There is a moment where there's a line in the sand and either you're going to cross that line, you're going to cross that threshold and follow after God, or you're not. That's just the way that it goes. God is always leading his people to make a choice, to make a decision. Which way are you going to go? There are always going to be a moment where there's a line in the sand, and either you're going to cross that line or you're not. And for Josiah, this is his line in the sand moment where he calls the people of God and he says, we are returning to the Lord. We are not going back the other way. It's his moment. And roughly 250 years before Josiah, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel was King Ahab. He was also a terrible king. He worshipped the false gods, particularly Baal. And at this time, Elijah the prophet 
confronted him with his idolatry and he challenged the people of Israel to make a choice. 1 Kings 18 verses 20 and 21 say this, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Elijah confronts the people of God and he says, what are you going to do? You need to make a choice. Either the Lord is God and follow him, or Baal is God, follow him. But quit sitting on the fence. There's a line in the sand moment. I remember being 17 years old, and I knew about the gospel, I knew about Jesus, but there was such an internal struggle inside of me because there's part of me that wanted to kind of follow God, but there was another part of me that I just wanted to live in my sin. I just wanted to get drunk and party and do my thing. And the Lord led me to a point where he just said, Wes, you need to stop sitting on the fence. What are you going to do? If you're going to follow me, then follow me. If you're not, then don't. And there is always a line in the sand moment where God is leading his people to say, what are you going to do? Make a choice. And this is Josiah's moment where he stands before God and he stands before the community and he says, we are making a choice today and we are going to follow the Lord. And this, is modeled, this part models his repentance. The second thing that Josiah models in his repentance is he ruthlessly gets rid of sin. He ruthlessly gets rid of sin. 2 Kings 23 verses 4 through 7 say this, the king ordered Hilkiah the high priest, the priest next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the story of hosts. Could you imagine walking into the temple of the Lord? Could you imagine walking into church and there is just temple, there's just these idols set up everywhere for worship? Josiah walks into the church, the temple of his day, and he says, no, we're cleaning house. We're getting rid of all of this. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley. He took the ashes up to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests and appointed the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places of the towns of Judah and on those around Jerusalem. Those, he burned, those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon, to the constellations and to all their starry hosts, he took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. He ground it to powder and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. He also tore down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes that were in the temple of the Lord, the quarters where women did weaving for Asherah. Josiah is not messing around here. <laughs> he is not playing games. He is not returning to the Lord with 25% of his heart. No, he's coming all the way back and he's walking into the temple and he's saying, this has to go. And he is cleaning house. This sin and idolatry has led people away from God into brokenness. And he's saying, no, we're done with this now. The Bible does not mince words with where your sin will take you. It does not. The Bible says sin leads to death, period. No exceptions. That's where it goes. And we, if we are going to get serious about repentance, then we need to get serious about identifying and recognizing what are the things that are causing me to sin and how do I get rid of them? 
How do I get rid of them? Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. He says this, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is not mincing words about this. I shared this, ver- I shared this passage with the, the CNC students a couple, probably a month or a month and a half ago. We're going through a series right now in college and career group on joyful repentance. I shared these verses with our students. And sometimes my wife Tamara and the kids, they'll come to CNC when it works out. And the kids were there that night. So my boys, they're, they're nine and seven, just about eight. And, and uh, they come up to me after I'm done speaking. And they're troubled. They come up to me after I'm done speaking and they're like, Dad, what was Jesus talking about there? Like, do we actually need to cut off our, what was he saying? Do we need to cut off our hands? Like, I don't understand, what are we supposed to, and, and they're like troubled. They're troubled. And, and, I'm, and I, got to, I got to lovingly reassure them. I'm like, boys, no, Jesus didn't mean that literally, but he did mean it seriously. It doesn't mean he meant it literally, like you need to cut off your hand or gouge out your eye, but he does mean it seriously. He does mean it seriously. What are the things that are causing you to sin? What are the things that you can recognize in your life are going, yeah, when I go there, I end up in sin. When I look at that, I end up in sin. When I engage here, I end up in sin. Get rid of it. Like, get rid of it. It has no place. It has no place being there. Cut it off. Maybe it's an app on your phone. Maybe it's a subscription to a streaming service. Maybe it's a relationship that is completely toxic and it is not leading you to godliness. It is not leading you to obedience. It is leading you away from the Lord. End it. Cut it off. It has no business being there. Jesus is ruthless towards sin. But don't misunderstand what he is teaching though. Just because Jesus is ruthless towards sin, it does not mean that he is ruthless towards sinners. There is a great distinction that we need to make sure we understand. This isn't who Jesus is. Jesus is merciful. He's compassionate. He is forgiving towards sinners. And at the exact same time, he hates and despises the sin that is leading you to death. There has never been anyone like Jesus before. Listen to how the Apostle John describes him in John chapter 1 verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Did you catch that? Full of grace and truth. Jesus is not one or the other. He is not one or the other. He is full of grace, full of tender-hearted mercy, love, and compassion, absolutely. And he is uncompromising and unwavering in his commitment to the truth. He even says, he says, I am the truth. I am the truth, he says. 
There is no wavering from one side or the other. He is the fullness of grace and truth. He does not lean one way or the other. You and I, we lean one way or the other. We tend to do this. Either we tend to lean towards grace, right? I'm just going to be gracious. I'm just going to be a super nice person. I'm just going to be like the sweetest pie Christian. I'm just going to be kind. I'm just going to be super nice and super nice Christian. And you never challenge anybody on truth. And conviction, it, it holds in the if, the, if your life was a boat, it's a sinking raft, we just, oh, we just, we're just going to be gracious, we're just going to be kind, we're just going to be so full, we're just going to be super nice people. We're so nice people. And we cannot hold any truth or any conviction. Or we lean to the other way. We lean to the opposite end of the spectrum, and we're going to be truth tellers. We're going to be truth. Because guess what? We have the truth. And we know the truth. And we're going to preach the truth. And we're, doggone it, we're right. And we're going to be truth-telling people because truth doesn't care two bits about your feelings. And we end up being self-righteous, smug jerks. Do not miss who Jesus is. Jesus is full of grace and he is full of truth. It is not one or the other with Jesus. It's not one or the other. He doesn't lean one way or the other. He is the fullness of grace and truth. In John chapter 5, Jesus, he has an encounter with a paralyzed man. This man has been lying at the pool of Bethesda, it says, for 38 years, paralyzed, lying there, longing for a miracle. And Jesus walks up to this man and he says, do you want to be well? And they have some back and forth a little bit. And Jesus, eventually, he gets to this man and he says, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. And instantly, this man is healed on the spot paralyzed, lying there for decades. Instantly, he is healed in a moment by the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And it's just astounding. It's just amazing. Like, oh my gosh, look at the grace of God. Look at the power of God. He's so, this is so amazing. Look at how gracious Jesus is. Isn't this amazing? And then you drop your eyes down four or five verses later in the text. He sees this same man in the temple and he walks up to the same man who is healed and he says, see, you have been made well. Stop sinning so that nothing worse will happen to you. What? Have you ever met somebody like Jesus? Have you ever met somebody like Jesus? He heals this man on the spot. You go, wow, look how gracious he is. Look how merciful. Look how kind he is. And he walks up to that same man later in the temple and he says, T, you're well. Stop sinning so that something worse won't happen to you. Jesus is not just grace or just truth. He is the fullness of both at the exact same time. He does not waver one direction or the other. He is the fullness of grace and truth. And I get it, it's hard as followers of Jesus because it's easier to lean one way or the other. It's easier to just lean and to be gracious and not truth tellers. Or it's easier to just be a truth teller and not give a crap about other people. That's not the way Jesus is. He is full of grace and he is full of truth. And he embodies both of those realities. That's why he's God and we're called to follow him. It's why the path is narrow. It's why the path is narrow. But we are called to follow it. 
And if we are going to return to the Lord with all of our hearts, we need to get ruthless about what sin has been entering into our lives and get rid of it. It has no place. It has no business there. The third thing that Josiah models for us in his repentance is a respect for the previous generations. 2 Kings 23, verses 15 through 18. Even the altar at Bethel, the high place made by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who had caused Israel to sin, even that altar and high place he demolished. He burned the high place and ground it to powder, and he burned the Asherah pole also. Then Josiah looked around, and when he saw the tombs that were there on the hillside, he had the bones removed from them and burned them on the altar to defile it, in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by the man of God who foretold these things. The king asked, what is that tombstone I see? The people of the city said, it marks the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and pronounced against the altar of Bethel the very things you have done to it. Leave it alone, he said. Don't let anybody disturb his bones. So they spared his bones and those of the prophet who had come from Samaria. As Josiah is cleaning house, he is getting rid of all the idolatry, all the sin out of the temple. He comes to a community called Bethel, and there is an altar there built by a previous king. I believe it is the king uh, Jeroboam. And he, oh, I've lost my place here, sorry. He, he goes to this, this altar in Bethel, and this king at this time, his name was King Jeroboam, and he, was off, he, he came after King Solomon. And this was one of the first sins that actually led Israel astray in the times of the kings. He built this altar, and there they started worshiping the Baals. And this prophet comes to King Jeroboam, and he, right, he says this in 1 Kings 13. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human, bone, human bones shall be burned on you. This man of God comes to King Jeroboam, and he prophesies this to the king roughly 300 years before Josiah ever shows up on the scene. And Josiah, as he takes his place in the story, without even fully recognizing it, he goes to the altar at Bethel, and he is cleaning house, and he is desecrating these false temples of these false gods, and he doesn't even realizing that he is stepping into the story of what was prophesied hundreds of years prior to that. And what this illustrates is so important to us is that God is a God of generations, God is a God of generations. When God is first revealing himself to his people, he says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And when God says that, he's not just saying, I am the God of all your ancestors, or I am the God of all eternal time and space. He is saying that. But he's, saying, he's revealing something important to us about how the kingdom of God works. You see, because when God starts something in one generation, it is his heart and intention that it would continue and build into the coming generations. God does not want to start something in one generation only to see it falter and fail in the next. 
He is a God of generations, meaning he wants his work and his word to continue throughout the generations. Psalm 145 verses 3 and 4 say this, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. Do you see that? One generation commends your works to another. The work that God starts in one generation, he intends to continue and carry on in the next. That is his heart and his intention. Or consider Malachi chapter 4, where the prophet, through God, God speaking through the prophet, says this Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. When the Spirit of God moves people in genuine repentance, there is respect and mutual honor and love for the generations. Far too often I hear one generation bemoaning, criticizing, complaining about another generation. My friends, that is not of the Spirit of God. It's not. That is not of the Spirit of God. Far too often I will hear a younger generation say of the older generation, they don't know anything. Bunch of old timers. Like, relax, boomer. Jeez, like, come on, chill out. They don't know anything. And it's dishonor and it's disrespect of the previous generation. And yet at the exact same time, I can hear an older generation bemoaning and criticizing the younger, saying to themselves, these young punks, they don't know anything. Back in my day, back in my day, we knew a thing or like, I don't know anything. That is not of the Spirit of God. It's not, because when the Spirit of God is moving people in genuine repentance, there is mutual love, mutual submission, mutual heart to go. The hearts of the sons return to the fathers, and the hearts of the fathers return to the sons. There is not this intergenerational contempt and resentment. It's not of the Spirit of God. But when the Holy Spirit comes and moves people into repentance, the generations are aligned and the work of God can continue and flourish. So I ask you today, if you are a son, if you are of a generation where you are a son, you are younger, I ask you, how are you moving to the Father's? How are you moving in love and in respect and sitting at the feet of those who are older than you, learning their wisdom, learning what they have to say? Because that is when the Spirit of God is at work. And I ask you, who are maybe of an older generation, how are your hearts moving to the sons? How are your hearts moving to the younger generation? How are you investing? How are you loving? How are you championing? How are you believing in these people before they even believe in themselves? When the Spirit of God is moving, He moves generations together, not apart. And when Josiah sees the prophet's bones, he says, do not touch them. He recognizes his place in the story, and he respects the past move of God, even when he's being faithful in his day and in his time. This is the third way that he demonstrates repentance. And lastly, King Josiah models his repentance by recentering the community around worship. Recentering the community around worship. 2 Kings 23, verses 21 and 23. And the king commanded all the people, 
Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during the days of the kings of Israel, or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem." In the midst of all the idolatry and false worship that was happening at the time, the distractions and the deceptions that the previous kings had caused, the people of God had forgotten the Passover. The Passover was to be their central unifying story as the people of God. There were many laws they were required to keep. There were many regulations and ceremonies that they, as the people of God, were to adhere to. But the Passover was the central unifying story of the people of God. And over time, they lost it. They just stopped observing it. And in the midst of that losing the story of God, they lost themselves. When you lose the story of God over you, you lose yourself. And as a community, they lost that central unifying story of the blood of the Lamb being covered for them. And they drifted and they wandered away into sin and into idolatry. Now over the last two years, it has been a deeply painful and trying time for all of us in various ways. And in the midst of everything that has happened and is still happening today, for some of you, this season has been a catalyst for your faith. In the midst of the pain and the trials and the challenges, you have allowed your heart to go deeper in God, your roots have gone deeper into His love, and you're firmer in your faith than you've ever been. Praise be to God. And at the exact same time, there are some of you here, this season, this last time, it has, been, it, it has nearly shipwrecked you. And you have drifted and you have wandered and you're going, I don't, you're disillusioned and you're going, I don't know what to think anymore. I don't know what's happening. What was once central to your faith, what was once central to your story has been lost. And what God is saying to us today is he's saying the worship of God must become central again. The worship of who he is, the declaring of who he is, the celebrating of who he is, the, the returning of all of our hearts to love and obedience of who he is, this must become central again. Or maybe it's just the busyness and the hecticness of crazy schedules and the, the, the centrality of worshiping God, of loving God, of knowing and pursuing God. It gets pushed to the side because we're busy and we got lots of stuff on the go and da 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 and you lose the story. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and they're going to lead us in a closing song, but as they do that, I just want to make one final observation as we close. It says in chapter 23, verse 3, as they're introducing Josiah, it says that it was in the 18th year of Josiah's reign that they began the work on the temple and they discovered the law is in the 18th year of his reign that he hears the word of the Lord and he repents. He tears his clothes and he repents and he cries out and he seeks after God. Now in chapter 23, verse 23, it says this, in the 18th year of his reign, Josiah kept the Passover. Don't miss that. 
It was in the 18th year of his reign that he heard the word of the Lord. And God spoke to him, and he repents, and he cries out to God, and he seeks God. And it's in the 18th year that he restores the worship that is central to their faith. His obedience is not delayed. For some of you here this morning, you have heard the word of the Lord. And I call you and I, I, I encourage you with all of my heart, don't let this 18th year moment slip by you. It's too easy to go, oh yeah, I'll, I'll get to that someday. I know I've kind of drifted, but yeah, we'll get to that at some point. No. In the 18th year of his reign, he heard the word of the Lord. And in the 18th year of his reign, he restores the centrality of worship. He comes back to God. His obedience is not delayed, it's immediate. Some of you are here today, and maybe what does returning to the Lord mean to you? I don't know exactly. Maybe it means a recommitment, a rededication, or a resurrendering, a fresh sense of I need to just surrender again to the Lord and commit myself to obedience. Maybe for some of you, it looks like getting ruthless with your sin. You know exactly as I've been preaching, and it's not me speaking, it's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. You know exactly what you need to cut out. You know exactly what you need to get rid of, what, what conversations you need to have, and you need to get ruthless about it. Maybe some of you are here and you've allowed the hecticness and the chaos and the confusion of the season and the worship of God has moved to, from being the central place to being periphery. And God is asking you to come back to him again, to make the worship, to make loving him and the seeking of loving him with all of your heart central again. A man asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responded and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. God, I ask as a people, as a community of faith, I ask you, Lord, that you would make us a people who love you first and foremost with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, God. May we return to you first and foremost, God, in the ways that we have sinned and we have strayed. God, forgive us and have mercy upon us, God. May we return to you afresh, Lord Jesus. You are worthy, O oh God. We bless your name. And Father, I ask for all of us, God, that as we learn to seek you, as we seek to love you with all of our hearts, God, help us. We cannot love you without you first loving us. We cannot love you without your strength. We need you for everything, God, and we humble ourselves before you because you are God and we are not. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, amen. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our church website at ebenezerbaptist.ca. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can let us know by clicking like and by subscribing to our podcast channel. God bless you and thanks for listening.